1: Good evening. Welcome. You're listening to The Cable. I'm Guy Johnson. It is 5pm in the city of London. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. Uh, If you want to find the podcast... can also do so on iTunes and Spotify. Let's talk briefly about the markets. I want to get you to the headlines. Then we want to talk about where Boris Johnson is right now. Uh, Quick spoiler, he's in Kiev. We're waiting for a press conference uh, with uh, the Ukrainian president. Uh, But the market's generally reasonably positive today from an equity point of view. European stocks higher. Bank stocks did well. UBS had a really strong day. Uh, You've also seen some of the mining stocks doing well. London and Frankfurt up circa 1%. The Paris market outperforming a little bit up around 1.2%. We've seen a stronger euro today, which is worth paying attention to uh, ahead of Thursday's ECB meeting. We saw French data today on the inflation front uh, that dipped, but didn't dip as fast as many people had anticipated. And that's a theme uh, that's been running around Europe. We've seen it for now. France, Germany uh, and Spain. We get Italian CPI tomorrow. Certainly a lot to watch out for over the next 24 hours. Plenty to talk about this evening. Let's get some headlines. Here's Charlie Pellett. Hi, thank you
3: very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. Tesco is cutting 1,600 jobs as it revamps how stores operate overnight. It is also shutting its experimental discount chain, Jack's, citing changing shopping habits during the pandemic. Britain's largest supermarket chain is shifting overnight stock replenishment to daytime at 85 shops and converting petrol stations to pay at pump only at night for 36 locations. The changes come just hours after Tesco announced it was closing meat, fish and hot deli counters at 317 shops. UK consumer borrowing remained resilient in December, uh, December, shaking off concerns about the Omicron variant of the coronavirus. The Bank of England said unsecured lending rose by £831 million, double the pace economists had expected. New mortgage approvals surged to 71015 defying forecasts for a drop. KPMG's UK arm says earnings surged in the latest fiscal year, although its partners continue to earn less than those at rival firms. UK revenue rose 10% to £2.4 billion in the firm's fiscal year to September 30th as its deal advisory business boomed. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson back to you now in London.
1: Two minutes past seven. Charlie over in Kiev. It's just gone eight o'clock uh, in Moscow. There's lots of news happening that we need to dig into. Uh, Charlie will be back in around 30 minutes time to update us on what we need to know. Thank you very much indeed, Charlie. Uh, but let's bring in now Roz Matheson, um, our international politics correspondent to give us a take on what is going on. Um, Roz, we've got, I can see the shots now, we've got uh, Viktor Orban and uh, President uh, Putin uh, speaking in Moscow. Viktor Orban of Hungary, the Premier there. We're awaiting a press conference with Boris Johnson and the Ukrainian uh, president Zelensky. Um, We've got a flurry of activity taking place. We had a Sergey Lavrov, um, Blinken uh, call a little bit earlier on. There's a lot of things happening right now. There's a lot of talk. There's a lot of diplomacy. There's a lot of people reaching out. My question is, are we getting any further towards a place where we probably won't see an invasion of Ukraine, or is that still very much firmly on the table?
4: Well, certainly, we're also seeing a lot of history lessons right at the moment. As we're speaking, the Russian president is delivering one um, during his briefing with the Hungarian prime minister, uh, saying the UK, the US, rather, is seeking to contain Russia using Ukraine. That the US could drag Russia into an armed conflict in a bid to weaken it. There's a lot of bluster. Still going on in those comments. Uh, but what we haven't had so far is the formal Russia response to the US proposals, the security proposals that they sent in to Moscow uh, a week or so ago. Uh, We're seeing further talk since then but still no proper assessment from Russia of those proposals. And until we get that, there's no sense of what could be the next step in terms of formal conversations, perhaps potentially at the presidential level, again, between the US and Russia to, to really try and hash this out. But as you're saying, what we're seeing in the meantime is just an insane amount of diplomatic activity that's been going on both with Ukraine itself and with Russia to try and get everybody to De-escalate, and particularly to buy time. Uh, The longer this goes on, in terms of discussions, negotiations, and conversations, perhaps the less likely it is that the Russian president decides to keep that many troops so close to the Ukrainian border.
1: Well, I I guess if he's delivering a a lesson on containment, which was the kind of the Kennan long telegram theory back from the uh, the nineteen fifties, was it late forties, early fifties, early fifties? I think. That was then followed by rollback, which kind of was designed to push the Soviet Union uh, further backwards. And I guess that maybe is what he's fearful of. What are we expecting from from Boris Johnson uh, in terms of his visits to Ukraine? The U.K. has taken a more hawkish line, certainly, than its European peers. Uh, Is that going to continue to be backed up today, do we think?
4: Well, the U.K. has been right there alongside the U.S. in terms of sending in uh, quite a lot of defensive which is actually also lethal in some, in some measures, but quite a lot of it's gone in from the UK as well and very much, as you say, in alignment with the US in terms of the rhetoric and the comments. The UK, of course, has said that it's had evidence uh, of, a, of efforts by Russia to undermine Ukraine from within uh, and, and really much very close to the US and, as you say, not really signs that the, the UK is communicating that much with Europe anymore, I guess, in this post Brexit world, the UK is trying to show it's got an independent foreign policy and it's charting its own course, even if that essentially means charting a similar course to America. But what you'll see from Boris Johnson, I imagine shortly in his, in his briefing there, in his meetings with uh, President Zelensky and others, is again, just promises to stand shoulder to shoulder with Ukraine, perhaps to deliver even more equipment and very much uh, in, in alignment with the US rhetoric on that.
1: In terms of what we're hearing, particularly out of the United States in terms of timing, is the idea still that an attack could be imminent? Is there a window that is closing for Vladimir Putin in terms of his ability to take action?
4: Well, the US uh, and UK and others have talked about a window that sort of stretches out perhaps to, to late February. I mean, of course, every week that that many troops are sustained on the ground near Ukraine. And of course, those very big exercises that are going to be occurring in Belarus uh, from the 10th to the 20th, that takes a lot of money to sustain that kind of military presence for an extended period. And of course, there's also the weather and the ground and whether it's conducive to a large scale military action. Uh, So the US and UK seem to be saying that really the window for that possibly closes around late February. But the reality is that there's, there's no reason that Russia could not mount uh, an incursion or an invasion of Ukraine beyond that window if they chose to do so. Uh, and there's also, you know, the idea that perhaps out of courtesy, the Russian president may ho- hold off if he did, did intend to actually engage in the action with Ukraine yeah. until after the, the Beijing Winter Olympics, which wrap up also in late February
1: yeah it's a useful a useful moment to, to think about. Vladimir Putin says he hopes the security dialogue will continue. What else are we expecting this week?
4: Well, what we're expecting is just the actual russian response which will give us a timeline perhaps for some further dialogue after that the russian president of course goes to beijing on friday for the opening of the beijing winter olympics he's likely to meet with the, uh, president xi jinping on the sidelines of that perhaps this weekend and so what we might see see there is some real conversation between those two asian powers about uh where russia sees this going um and certainly also we need to look to see any conversations that Russia might be having with, for example, Finland, which plays an important conduit role between East and West in these matters um, and the back channels that might come there. But one thing to look for definitely is what happens when the Russian president visits China uh, later this week.
1: Ros Matheson, plenty still to digest and think about this week. Thank you very much indeed. Kennan's Long Telegram, 1946. My timeline was a bit off, uh, but certainly a significant event around containment, which is what Vladimir Putin's been talking about. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Good evening. The standout stock story in Europe today was UBS. The bank in Zurich, getting an unexpected boost from its investment banking business, fixed income in particular, really performing trading bonds, etc. Uh, equities did fairly well. Uh, the company continues to do very well in its wealth management business. The new strategy update was warmly welcome. My good friend and colleague, Manus Cranny got to sit down with the company's chief executive officer, Ralph Harmers, to talk about the story going
5: forward. We have ended the year in a very, very, uh, in a very good way. Uh, with a core tier 1 ratio of 15%. Uh, We have a model that keeps generating capital. Our growth is capital light. We don't need a lot of capital to grow. We want to keep a strong balance sheet. However, we do have surplus capital. If you have surplus capital, it doesn't need to be used for further growth, Mm -hmm. then you should redistribute it to your shareholders. And that's why the message is there today. Progressive
2: is the word that's used around the dividend and payout in terms of how the market sees you are you trying to push out ahead as the payout bank of choice
5: not necessarily i think uh, what we are looking at is literally our strategy so the market was waiting for okay where's the strategy going Mm -hmm. our strategy is to build that global ecosystem for investing now building that ecosystem uh, with our clients with new contributors uh, does not need a lot of capital to grow we grow it it will grow in income. Mm-hmm. It will need some capital. It generates a lot of capital. Now, if it generates a, couple, a lot of capital and it grows, you can do two things: you can continue to pay a handsome dividend, and redistribute, redistribute to your shareholders if you have a capital surplus situation. And that's what we do. The market says for five
2: rate hikes. What do you believe they will do? What do, you, what do you believe the market can take in terms of rate hikes without a major implosion?
5: it's exactly that number i think so uh otherwise the market wouldn't be expecting it right it's almost kind of um, a, a logic reasoning in itself but um i i actually think it's it's about you know so just here, you're going for five to seven sorry you're going for five to seven rate hikes no no no. it's the four to five four to five that is exactly what is priced in the market as we speak and and i think the market can take that and I think the Fed is just waiting for the market to have really assumed and uh, absorbed that and then they may do it or they will do it. So basically they are signaling it will be coming, the market is adjusting and then they will do it and then uh, clearly maybe towards the end of the year depending on uh, how the inflation actually develops uh, they may either do more or less. From an inflation perspective Mm -hmm. I actually think uh, 2020 will be a year of two halves. In the first half year, still high inflation, but because of then hopefully decreasing tension in the supply chain, decreasing tension in the labor markets, and a more balance between the demand coming from COVID savings, for example, uh, that from that perspective, hopefully also supported with some uh, monetary policy there, uh, that the inflation will be down and under control towards the end of the year. So I think it's going to be a year of two halves here. Okay, let's see how that plays out.
2: But inflation plays out in wages. Christian Saving is seeing an increasing war
5: for talent. Are you? I think we're all in the same market here, right? So uh, where we see some, uh, some pressure on our, uh, on our workforce, uh, we see it in the US. Uh, we see it in a bit in wealth Asia Pacific mm-hmm. because uh, we are the leading wealth manager in Asia and we see it in investment banking across the globe, in the banking sphere. Uh, now clearly, we pay competitively, we pay for performance, uh, we have the talent to make our, uh, our plan, uh, and uh, to the extent uh, we need to pay up, we will do so as we have done so last year. Having said that, we have a very good and attractive culture to work in as well, so uh, I think there's is, there is, there is more recipes that, than just pay to make sure that the people stay.
2: What kind of percentage do you see the bonus pool at UBS rising this year?
5: Uh, I I can't give the percentage yet, uh, but it is increasing. Well, 2020 Uh, was
2: up by 24%. Yeah,
5: it is not as much as that uh, this year. It is about paying for performance. That is what is important. Uh, And if people perform, they get paid well. Uh, If they don't, they, they, they don't.
1: Uh, that was the CEO of UBS, Ralph Hamers, talking to Manus Cranny. Up next, we're going to talk more about the Fed. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
0: I would be supportive of a 25 basis point increase in March. Could we do 50? Yeah, uh, should we? Well, I'm a little less uh, convinced of that right now. But we'll see how the data
6: turn out in
1: the next couple of weeks. That was Philadelphia Fed President Patrick Harker talking about the fact that he's very much in favor of a 25 basis points interest rate hike uh, come March. A little bit more leery when it comes to 50, not completely ruling it out. Uh, That conversation, exclusive conversation with Bloomberg a little bit earlier on, led by Bloomberg's Mike McKee, who joins us now in the studio in New York. Mike, the, the, the Fed seems to be pushing back on the idea of, uh, of 50 in March, but not pushing back completely on that uh, as a concept. How realistic should we consider the possibility of a 50 basis point hike now we've heard from Harker and others?
7: Don't think you should consider it very realistic. Uh, the Fed would be trying to, as the one observer put it, foam the runway for uh, 50 basis point move now, if they were actually contemplating it. And we've heard now from Pat Harker with us today, Mary Daly yesterday, uh, Esther George yesterday, saying they don't think they need to do 50 basis points uh, in March, but they're leaving their options open just in case. I mean, I suppose there could be some really weird. CPI inflation number in February that would cause them to be more scared. But we've got most of the data now, and it doesn't look like they're going to change their mind. At least they're not out preparing the markets for that. In terms of what he said
1: about the relationship between Fed funds and the balance sheets, he talked about Fed funds becoming by far and away the primary tool that the Fed is going to lean on going forward from here, a return, in some ways you could argue, to normality pre-2008. He talks about the idea that the the balance sheet runoff will be like watching paint dry. He talks about paint drying, i.e. a slow process, a predictable process. In terms of that expectation being reflected in the market, is that what people are looking for? Is that the communication that we should be paying attention to?
7: It's a partial communication. It tells people, and this is what came out after the Fed meeting, they put out their principles for doing this. It tells the market how they're going to do it, but it doesn't give them any figures yet on uh, when they start or how much they're going to let roll off each uh, each period of time uh, in the past when they did this uh, the one time before, uh, they had caps uh, on the amount of roll-off for both treasuries and mortgage securities because the roll-offs are uh, inconsistent uh, because it depends on the maturity of the bonds. So, they try to keep it consistent uh, in terms of how much each month so the markets can prepare for that.
1: In terms of his thoughts as to the recent shift in market pricing. How much is he paying attention to that? The Fed hasn't done anything yet. The market has moved a
7: lot. I think they're quite happy with that, the market doing some of their work for them. And as they have all said, we're going to be data dependent, we're going to watch what happens in the economy. And if market pressure on interest rates slows the economy some, that's less that the Fed has to do. At At some point, the Fed wants to get the Fed funds rate, their main tool, as they've said, up high enough that if they had to cut it again in an emergency, they could do that. Right now they have very little ammunition for if there were some sort of downturn from here. Uh, They feel they can go a long way because at this point the economy is pretty strong, much stronger than it was the last time they were cutting back, which was after the great financial crisis uh, when they started in 2014-15. And so uh, they'll, they'll watch the markets as long as they don't get out of control. Uh, they'll watch the markets and be relatively pleased with that.
1: The, the Fed is clearly data dependent. We're all data dependent. We're all spending a lot of time trying to parse the data, understand what it's telling us. We'll come on to the ISM, which we got a couple of hours ago in just a moment. But But first, do we have an idea of which data the Fed are looking at? we're all trying to understand the reaction function. We're data dependent. There is no forward guidance. Do we have any clues as to to what the Fed is looking at, what the FOMC is looking at, what the voters are looking at in terms of making those decisions?
7: Well, Harker told us today it's basically, and he's a voter, at least a temporary voter um, as a alternate for the Boston Fed seat, which is empty at the moment, Uh, he's watching inflation solely. He says, we are there on employment. So they're going to be watching indicators that give them some idea of what price pressures are going to be like. And there's a whole panoply. I mean, we start with the economic uh, uh, cost index, which is which came out last week and showed uh, wages or wage pressure still high, but a little bit lower than it was the, the prior quarter. We've got the CPI coming up on the 10th of the month. Friday, we'll get average hourly earnings. It's a little bit hard to make something out of that because composition effects play a big role. But all these things will go together, and the Fed will try to analyze what it means for future inflation.
1: In terms of what we took away from the ISM manufacturing number we got, as I say, just over a couple of hours ago, um, the, the, the prices paid component was was reaccelerating, i.e., inflation starting to tip back up again. Tim Fiore, who who runs those numbers, said, "Don't worry about it. I'd expect that number to tick a little bit lower." as a result of uh, price increases that have come through at the beginning of the year. But nevertheless, how bumpy is that inflation data going to be? How easy is it going to be to read, do you think, over the next few months?
7: It's going to be very difficult uh, because we don't know what's going to happen with the virus. And the virus is sort of driving everything. China is trying to get by with this uh, no COVID policy, but that means they have to shut down portions of the economy if there's an outbreak. And so that could lead to further problems with uh, supply chains. We've got um, there were something like uh, eight and a half million people who were out sick during the pay period for the January payrolls in the United States. They had they, they reported they had COVID or were caring for somebody who had COVID, so they weren't at work. And that creates supply chain problems. Uh, then you throw in stuff like the blizzard we just had in the Northeast that uh, shuts down transportation for a couple of days. All those things come together. And Uh, It's really hard to predict what's going to happen to uh, inflation. Now, uh, Tim Fiore is right. The fact that they have already passed on price increases means that you won't get the percentage changes the next month. But we're still going to be up in the air for a while.
1: Mike, great interview. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. Bloomberg's Mike McKee. This is Bloomberg. (laughs) Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Good evening. Welcome. 5.30 in the city of London. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson. Let me talk you through the price action as we see it right now. The S&P over in the United States, um, absolutely flatlining right now. Uh, It's come back quite strongly over the last half hour. Back to flat. The Nasdaq also flat, but in positive territory. Um, We're watching very very carefully to see what happens this first day of February. Here in Europe, the picture a little bit more positive. Um, We were up by uh, 1% on the FTSE 100. The CAC are up by 1.43%. The DAX uh, up by nine-tenths of 1%. So those are the markets. Politics playing a big part in all of this. The situation in Ukraine, certainly front and centre. The Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, is in Kiev today, standing alongside President Zelensky. Let's take a listen what he has to say.
6: ...interesting and and, and positive ways. But we have to face a a grim reality, which is that uh, as we stand here, uh, Volodymyr, uh, today more than 100,000 Russian troops are gathering on your border in perhaps the biggest demonstration of hostility towards Ukraine in our lifetimes. And the potential deployment dwarfs the 30,000 troops that Russia sent to invade Crimea in 2014. Uh, Since that time, of course, as everybody knows, 13,000 Ukrainians have been killed, and Ukraine has been plunged into nearly a decade of war. It goes without saying that a further Russian invasion of Ukraine would be a political disaster, a humanitarian disaster, in my view, it would also be for Russia, for the world, a military disaster as well. And uh, it, uh, the uh, potential invasion completely uh, flies in the face of President Putin's claims to be acting in the interests of the Ukrainian people. The UK and other countries will be judged. By the people of Ukraine and the world on how we respond and how we help. Since 2015, the UK has trained over 22,000 Ukrainian military personnel and provided £2.2 million worth of non lethal military equipment to Ukraine. Two weeks ago, we sent anti tank weaponry to strengthen Ukraine's defences further. And today, I've announced a further £88 million of UK funding to support good governance and energy independence in Ukraine. This will both bolster your efforts, Volodymyr, and those of others, to build a free and prosperous Ukrainian society free of malign influences. Alongside other countries, we are also preparing a package of sanctions and other measures. To be enacted the moment the first Russian toe cap crosses further into Ukrainian territory. And we have done all this and prepared all this, not as a show of hostility towards Russia, but as a demonstration that we will always stand up for freedom and democracy and Ukrainian sovereignty in the face of aggression. In recent days, I have spoken to the leaders of the United States, France, Germany, Italy, Uh, the NATO Secretary General and others, all agree on the fundamental importance of supporting Ukraine's self-determination. Because the people of Ukraine have the inalienable right to choose how they are governed and, indeed, which organisations they aspire to join. And, as your friend and partner, the UK will always uphold that right. It is vital that Russia steps back and chooses a path of diplomacy, and I believe that is still possible. We are keen to engage in dialogue. Of course we are. But we have the sanctions ready. We're providing military support, and we will also intensify our economic cooperation, because we are a firm and enduring ally. Of ukraine and a supporter of ukraine's territorial sovereignty and integrity thank you all very much
3: uh, thank you,
6: thank you dear okay. colleagues. Journalists. you
1: have been listening to boris johnson the prime minister is in kiev uh, standing alongside the ukrainian premier the ukrainian president uh, vladimir Zelensky. Um the Ukrainians trying to take a cautious approach at the moment, seeing at this stage uh, no evidence of an immediate threat, an immediate invasion uh, coming from Russia. But as the prime minister says, uh, huge numbers of troops massed on the border. Uh, we'll come back and continue to monitor what is happening here uh, vis-a-vis the situation in Ukraine in that press conference. Any heads, uh, I will bring them to you. But let's get back and talk more about the markets right now uh, today. The situation is this: uh, European markets coming out of the gate, at the beginning of February, fairly positively, up circa one percent. In the states, uh, we are flat uh, as we uh, as we start the month. The Nasdaq and the S and P both currently flat what do we learn from january the incredibly bumpy january the incredibly volatile january uh, that we've just lived through uh in terms of what it teaches us about what february is going to bring bloomberg opinions john authors joining us now on the line from new york john that's the question what do we learn from january and what does it tell us about february
0: i think what we've learned um from january primarily from uh, the publication of the Fed minutes early in the uh, month and from Jay Powell's press conference towards the end of the month, is that uh, we should definitely expect the Fed to be more aggressive than we were before, that that the Fed does see a real inflation problem, uh, and that um, the response at the short end of the market has been enough to... Cause a lot more volatility. I would go. That's that's what's truly new that we that the, 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 that's happened so far this year. I would not expect the volatility to be over. Um, the, you know, this period of trying to work out what we do in this new environment with the the new inflationary paradigm. I wouldn't expect that to be over until we have some considerable clarity over exactly how serious the inflation problem is and how far the Fed needs to go. I think it's probably, I don't know if it'll it'll all be like January, but I suspect we're going to have a very choppy whole year
1: for 2022. So is is the bottom in? Was last Monday the bottom? Can we assume for the time being that the bottom is in? Or as you seem to be suggesting, the potential for a continuation of this volatility and potential further tests of that downside can't be ignored?
0: uh I, I would say I would say both things I think if
1: we are dependent on the data at the moment,
0: you know we always say that, but it's more than usually true because it's unusually difficult to work out exactly how serious the inflationary pressure is uh it's It would be unusual for the market sell off to go much further than it has at the moment absent a recession um which isn't imminent, as in in the next few months. Um, I, I would therefore suspect that the bottom might well be in, providing we don't have significantly new bad news on inflation. Like, if, if you... I'm not predicting this. If, for the sake of argument, headline inflation went through 10%, or wage increases really went up a notch at the beginning of the year, then um, you then projections become much more hawkish, yeah. and maybe you do get a significant further write down.
1: If the bottom is in, at least for the time mm. being, does that mean we go back to the highs? I, the pace we're on at the moment, we will be yeah. back at the highs before this month is out.
0: I'd, I and that's perfectly conceivable. I mean, we've also got earnings season. Noticeable, the earnings haven't been that bad, and they haven't helped really arrest um, a lot of turbulence. Uh, I think you can probably expect a retest of the highs. I, again, I, I had a, I, you know, my this morning. I was looking at historical experience. About the end of this month or sometime thereafter is about when you might begin to expect us to to get back to uh, the highs, assuming or to test the highs, assuming that we uh, again that we don't have significant new bad news. So that, that, that's, uh, there, there is a similarity there with um, uh, 2007. You had a couple of sell-offs. Um, obviously, we know what happened the year after, which I'm not necessarily predicting, but in 2007, you had some very overblown markets in particular ways, um, but you didn't have uh, an economy that was on the point of collapse. And so you had a, a couple of, fairly big sell-offs that were both yeah. um, you know, re- retreated within a, within a matter of a few months.
1: John, you, you keep talking about the economy, which I think is interesting, because there are some that mm-hmm. would argue that the financial markets dislocated from the economy as a result yes. of the, the extreme QE that has been delivered, the amount of liquidity that has been ejected into these markets, unprecedented. Yes. So is the, is the economy the best guide, or is liquidity the best guides as to where we trade from here?
0: Oh, okay. Uh, for, the, for for trading, unquestionably, liquidity is. Um, th- th- thank you very much for making that point. Yes, if 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 you have a much sharper um, reduction in liquidity than we're currently expecting, that also changes the picture very significantly. Uh, ultimately, liquidity and the economy have a very great impact on each other. But in the short term, yes, I. I'd agree that you need to you need to watch out for those liquidity factors. The Fed isn't actually finishing QE until um, you know until March. Uh, that would you, you're, you're quite right. If, if they were if they were more aggressive about their plans for QT uh, come March than people are currently expecting, that would be a, a, a dangerous moment for the market. Um, but yeah, yes, you are right. The the, uh, the last 30 or 40 years have been steady growth for the economy and, generally speaking, amazing growth for financial markets. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if we see those begin to reconnect more uh, over time.
1: I'm, I'm assuming you don't mean that the economy suddenly... Has a blistering period of growth that financial markets ultimately track down towards towards the kind of traditional more more. Well, a lot more of the, tra-
0: I can but, remember about a year ago, people were talking about that the reopening trade. there, there, yeah. there, there was great excitement about it. I, 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 logically, it would be nice to believe in that. What we're seeing about the, yeah, you know, we're learning more about the effects of the pandemic and the ongoing effects of the pandemic. I, I, yeah. You know, the more likely scenario is that uh, is that financial markets um move downwards to meet an economy which maybe uh move you know increases
1: slightly more strongly than we've been used to um how how what I, I does, what does, would what does this... we take that? What? Well, yeah, I think a lot of people would as well. What does fiscal policy yeah. look like in this kind of environment? What do you think is priced right now? I I saw some comments earlier on from Joe Manchin from West Virginia, mm. uh, a thorn in the side of the president. Certainly, he, I, I think he said that Bill Bill is now dead. Um, it, it, in terms of what you think is priced around fiscal policy, do you think the market has got to that conclusion as well?
0: I think so. I think you could argue um, that that was... Part of the reason for the, for the turbulence we've, we've run into in that uh, part of the great reopening trade, the reflation trade, was the notion that there really would be even more fiscal money, which in the short term unquestionably is good for, for stock prices usually. Uh, in terms of the inflation dynamics, uh, it would be another reason some degree of confidence that inflation comes under control in the medium term. I yep. don't think Build Back Better itself has any influence on where inflation goes in the next 12
1: months. Just a lo- final quick question. ECB mm. Thursday. The market's pricing in 25 bips at this point in terms of hikes this year. Does that seem realistic mm. to you? Do you think they can ignore what's happening in the rest of the world?
0: Uh, it, it seems possible to me. I would expect them to have to go further. You do have the the critical point is that the american labor market appears to be more of an inflationary problem for the states than the labor market is for uh, the ecb in europe but when it comes to all the problems with supply chains there is as, as big of a problem in europe as it as anywhere else i think they'll be lucky if they only hike once
1: wow okay John, interesting stuff as ever. Really appreciate uh, you joining us and the comments that you write. Uh, fascinating read every single morning uh, on my train into work. John Authors, thank you very much indeed. Uh, up next, we'll carry on the conversation about is what is happening in these markets. Uh, we heard from NXP CEO a little bit earlier on. This is a Dutch company listed over in the States. Hugely exposed to the, uh, the auto sector in terms of the semi-supply. Really interesting conversation. We'll hear some of that next.
2: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Let's talk about what is happening in the chip sector, the semiconductor sector. A huge supply crunch continues to hit key industries, including the automotive industry. One company that supplies a great deal of that sector's semiconductors is NXP. It's a Dutch company. It's listed over in the United States. Uh, Its CEO is Kurt Sievers. Kelly Lines and I caught up with him a little bit earlier on. The numbers posted today, absolutely eye-watering, really strong growth, 20% plus growth in terms of top-line growth. This is a company that is performing, outperforming the whole of the sector. Is that sustainable? Well, that was the question that we put to Kurt at the beginning of the interview
8: we absolutely believe they are sustainable uh, and, and maybe just to put it a little bit in context we had grown last year 28 percent year over year and that is 25 percent over the pre-pandemic year 2019 so just to put it in perspective half of our business is in automotive and the automotive part of our business actually did grow by 44 percent last year compared to a sar growth of only a two and a half or three percent i believe last year now, looking at the guidance, um, we just guided this morning uh, to have another year on year growth of 21% in the first quarter of, uh, of this calendar year. Uh, and I also made kind of a soft forecast for the year to be above our long term growth plan, which is 8 to 12% over the next three years. So I did say we will be above 12% for the total company for the entire calendar year okay. 22. Now I do think it is sustainable because our, the largest part of NXP is exposed to the automotive and to the industrial markets. Those are very lo- longevity markets, uh, very sticky design wins, very, very, very strong content growth. If you think about electric vehicles, if you think about smart manufacturing in the industrial space, and our design win uh, inventory is so full that I'm, I'm very, very confident about that growth.
4: Well,
1: speaking of the automotive space in particular, Kurt, I was speaking with the chairman of Renault last week. We've heard from a number of auto executives that they think that the supply crunch on the, on the semi-side, on the chip side, is going to ease in the second half of this year. Are they being too
8: optimistic? Uh, We actually believe that um, there might be areas where it's indeed a bit easing in the second half of the year. A bit easing means that maybe we come a little bit closer to to a demand-supply balance. Uh, But over and above, I do not think that at the end of this year, we will be exiting and will be in balance between demand and supply. And mind you, all of this is still in a situation where... Um, especially the auto OEMs and their suppliers, Tier 1 suppliers, would love to build up strategic inventory going forward. Nobody, I think, is going to be in any position this year to do this. We see inventory still being super lean across the entire extended supply chain. So I I really don't see how how we will come into balance uh, through this year. Kurt,
1: in the past, this has been an incredibly cyclical industry. We're seeing huge investments at the moment being made by you, your rivals, across the industry. You talk about the industry not getting into balance for really quite some time. Is this cycle going to be different? Are we going to see at some point going from sort of the famine to feast in terms of the availability of of semiconductors on the market? Or, and I hate to use this phrase, is this – is this cycle going to be different? Is this time going to be different?
8: Well, I, I don't know if it is going to be different for the en- entirety of the semiconductor industry. I think it is different when it comes to the markets which NXP is 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 almost uniquely exposed to, which is the industrial and automotive market. So, think about three quarters of the company is in an industrial and automotive. And here, I do believe it is different for two reasons. One. The kind of applications which are coming up here are just showing significant sustainable new demand, which is not about shortwave mobile or computing demands, but it's much more about stable demands in in strong industries like automotive and industrial.
1: China is a very large market for you, Kurt, and I'm wondering how you're seeing the demand picture there in particular, given some of the more idiosyncratic factors happening in that market in particular.
8: Well, China represents about half of our ship-to-revenue, but that doesn't mean all of that product remains in China. In many cases, we actually ship to China. It's being built into a half-finished or fully-finished product, which is then re-exported back to Europe or or the U.S. Uh, We currently don't see any slowdown in the demand from China.
1: Okay. Let's just talk a little bit about production and what's happening with the increasing desire on a nation-by-nation basis to be able to have some degree of production on short. Kurt, we have the the CHIPS Act uh, going through Congress at the moment. We'll wait and see exactly on the timing surrounding that. But nevertheless, you are a company that that outsources a, a decent chunk of your production. What do you make of the CHIPS Act? what do you think it's going to achieve and will it change your thinking in terms of how you think about production and where you manufacture?
8: Well, first of all, we, we greatly appreciate the CHIPS Act. I think it's a, it's a super important um, element of the policy in the US to strengthen the the, 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 the the chip industry in the US because there will be ever more demand and ever more dependence on semiconductors going forward. Uh, At the same time, what we are seeing is that where the semiconductor industry used to be almost a perfectly globalized industry, there is now more a move again, and I I don't know where this is exactly going to land going forward, more a move again to be more regionalized because the same thing the U.S. is trying to do is happening in Europe. I think it's going to be next week they're going to announce what they also call a CHIPS Act, which is the target to, I think, quadruple the amount of semiconductors being manufactured in Europe um, to a 20% world market share. So this is happening in the US and it is happening in Europe. And I think genuinely this is a good move. And given the fact that NXP is a very global company, we definitely support and appreciate that.
1: Kurt Sievers, the CEO of NXP, talking to Kay Lines and I a little bit earlier on. Talking of tech, the Nasdaq currently flat down by just one-tenth of one percent stateside. Uh, very similar being numbered, a bit, very similar number being posted by the S&P, if I can get that out in terms of percentage performance. We're basically flat uh, on the other side of the Atlantic. The FTSE 100, though, finishing up by nine-tenths of one percent. The CAC up by 1.43 percent. Uh, the DAX uh, up by nine-tenths of one percent as well. Hope you enjoyed the show. This was The Cable. This is
8: Bloomberg.